Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. My name is Craig Thompson, and this is the open source field guide to help you understand everything you need to know about breaking into finance. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Super excited to introduce everyone to Rodrigo Castellanos. Um, and Rodrigo, I'll give you a second to just like say you know your name, how we know each other, and what in the world you you do today. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, well, super, super excited to be here. Um, thanks, Craig, for for having me on. Hi, everyone. My name is Rodrigo. I am uh, an investment associate at the Stepstone Group, um, particularly focused in venture capital and growth equity. Yeah, I'm originally from Mexico City. Um, have been living in the states for a while now, and I had the the pleasure of meeting Craig um, while I was at, at Warden, while we were classmates, and we. We're able to to collaborate in a couple of things uh, through the uh, private equity and venture capital club. Uh, great, great program, great resource for me. Definitely, I wouldn't be um, at my current job um, or you know have met Craig, for instance, you um, if I hadn't applied and, and been on the board. So super um, happy and and you know feeling very lucky that I was able to do that. I want to wind back the clock like a decade. So you're an undergrad. You're at Georgetown. Yes. Uh, what you? What did you major in? Uh, it was technically international economics, but that's just a, a, a f- yeah. In my in my school, so I went to the School of Foreign Service. They just add international before yeah. every major. <laughs> okay. So, so I I I was also an econ major, and as a fellow econ major, I know that it is tangential to finance, but it's, you know, it's not quite the same thing. So you somehow managed to wriggle your way into an internship at JP Morgan. Could you just talk a little bit about the group where you interned and maybe a little bit as much as you can remember about what that interview process and like prep was like for you? Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. Um, Yeah, I I can even start probably before, uh, more than 10 years ago, kind of how I I even started applying to schools and what my approach was. And I was, you know, again, to dive a little bit deeper into my background, originally from Mexico City, through circumstances, my family emigrated to the U.S. Um, but, you know, it was it was interesting because both of my parents are college educated, but at the same time, uh, they're college educated in Mexico, right? And it was this mentality of like you go to school you get and then you get a good job right and they're both accountants love my parents by the way they're great people uh but it's definitely like you know um what is it a a bird in one hand is better than two in the bush or something like that like always not a lot of risk taking um so when i was applying to school um i knew that i wanted to do something in like the international relations sphere. I was very much into Mali UN. And so that's why, and I, I'm giving this background to, to get eventually to address your question. But um, so I, I applied to school, got to Georgetown, dream school, amazing. And so my first year was really all about like just getting the basics down, right? And again, like I just didn't know what going to school in the US would be like. Um, so it was, or going to university in the US would be like. And so so it was kind of a a lot of new things coming at me um and but at the same time like Georgetown I think did a great job of like ex- giving folks the opportunity to explore um so I was very focused on my academics the first year but then going into the second year like 
those conversations started happening with my family of like, okay, like, what do you think? What do you think you're going to do after, you know? And so it started to become like, I don't know, well, like, I guess I'll become a diplomat or, you know, work in a think tank or something. And they're like, what's that? Like, does that even pay the bills? Or like, you're going to become a government worker. And, you know, like, I love my wife, uh, who I actually met in school, she's a government worker. But um, in Mexico, it's like, well, the government workers are not as uh you know not 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 seen in the same light so as if you won't go into the private sector so i started thinking about that and then you know in comes like junior year where i was i didn't know what consulting was i didn't know really what investment banking was certainly not what investment management was and you know alternatives and all that stuff was completely new to me and but and the good thing i think about georgetown was like and we had a lot of folks come into campus like pwc came in um, you know, Deloitte, um, obviously Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan. So, you know, and these are like words that I kind of knew about or like kind of knew, you know, what JP Morgan did, but I couldn't tell you really the, the, the biggest difference between a stock and a bond really at, at some point. Um, but um, it was there, right? And like, that's kind of where my classmates were going. And I was like, well, it sounds like it could be an interesting place to spend the summer. So, and I know that sounds like super privileged and and, and I do want to acknowledge it, that it, it was, um, but at the same time, um, I, I really didn't know what was going on. So I was going to a lot of, um, to a lot of like info sessions and learning. And I realized quickly that like investment banking wasn't probably going to be my thing given like almost the second sentence was, the hours are horrible. And so with that, I was like, that doesn't sound like I want to do that. But, you know, obviously, like I still tried and I applied, didn't get any internships, but I did get or any offers or, you know, even interviews. But I did manage to get an interview with the asset management side. And so when I, you know, was talking to folks, it's like, oh, well, you know, you spend a lot of time and actually like, um, interestingly enough, it was people who had my same background, who had gone to the School of Foreign Service had done economics or or just didn't hadn't done you know business things so they didn't study finance they didn't study whatever like some of them were French majors and I was like you're a, you know and uh, whatever sales or trading at Credit Suisse and you know you you majored in French it's like well tell me about that like how did you make that jump so I think you know for the listeners out there it's like you have to find I think people it sounds obvious right but just like find people who come from your same background. And then try who are in these positions where or in these places where you want to be eventually and like start talking to them first about like what you have in common, but then very much come at it um, with like kind of a, a game plan of like, this is the one thing that I want to get out of a conversation with someone. And so I started doing that and, you know, managed to get a, an internship at, at JP Morgan. Um, and it was great. It was it was a ton of fun. Uh, very um high expectations you know high intensity um but i really loved it i really loved it it was a great time uh wasn't lucky enough to to get a, a return offer and that's something we can talk about too because i think you know when you're when you're younger um having a setback like that can feel like it's the end of the world and it certainly did for me right um but you know it ended up being okay you know later on so here we are 10 12 years after um but yeah, anyway, I'll stop there and, and see if 
Could could you talk a little bit, I think like one of the most intimidating things about big banks globally and, you know, like JP Morgan Chase is like the biggest of all the big banks is there all of these silos that have all of these names that, you know, are hard to like the big names are hard to understand. And then you filter down and there are all these groups that do very specific things. So could you just talk a little bit about where within asset management you interned and like just an overview of the asset management umbrella at a, at a big bank like JPM? Absolutely. Yeah. So broadly speaking, right. You have, well, let's just say start with, with asset management at JP Morgan. There was, there were two big buckets. It was basically institutional money management. So think about like, um, you know, like the big, um, funds. So kind of like a, a, a long only fund, you know, investing only in stocks in the stock market, but it's the JP Morgan, you know, quantum fund or whatever yeah. they call it. Yeah. Like these funds are like an insurance company, maybe like if like MetLife is like an insurer and they like have a bunch of positions like that type exactly. of company. Okay. Exactly. So that's, that's like one silo and the, there was a lot of silos, but the side, and that's not where I was. I was at the private bank actually. So that's, a, I think, a little bit easier to conceptualize, and that's why I went into it, too. It's wealth management, right? Where the acronyms are going to start rolling in is the ultra high net worth, right? Those were the, yep. I can't remember what it was, but it's like yeah. people with a ton of money, like a ton, ton of money, um, millions and millions. Um, and then you have your high net worths, which I think we said it was like 10 million assets or like net worth of 10 million um, or under. Um, and so I was in the private bank and 10 million of investable assets too, right? Not just like you can't count your house towards it. So these, these are like very wealthy folks that just have like $10 million that they are actively investing, targeting, you know, half a million to a million dollars just on returns. Like they're just making money on their money, um, as the minimum, like those are, those are the, the, the poorest of the folks you're interacting with. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And so where I was so and then within that private bank, you know, you have the bankers. So those are like the relationship managers, they deal with the clients, you know, show them the investment opportunities. And then you have a lot of people basically like the support, right. And so I was part of that support team. um, And I was in a place called GIO. And again, with the acronyms that stands for Global Investment Opportunities Group. And what we did and how we functioned, it was basically like an in-house hedge fund only for private bank clients. And I remember vividly, like, you know, when I was going through my my um, interviews, I was like, I'm from Mexico City, you know, I'm from Mexico, super interested in LATAM. Um, and so I thought I was going to be placed in one of the covering teams with LATAM and, you know, interacting with clients. And then I get put in this kind of like, you know, in-house hedge fund. I was like, like what what happens and it's one of those like serendipitous things of like it kind of just happened like i asked around it's like yeah we don't know they just needed someone here and you got here and that's what it was so um but it ended up being great because you know as as you know craig like hedge funds have the ability to invest in anything right so that meant that i had exposure to everything that i i didn't even know existed right so not only stocks not only bonds uh, but now also you started getting into like currencies, like we would create currency, what we call products or like trading strategies for folks. Um, there wasn't, if, you know, the listeners here, 
probably going to be like, wow, this guy's so old. There weren't cryptocurrencies back then. Like, I mean, there were, but it was an investable asset. Yeah, just just Satoshi, not exactly. not all these ICOs and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and by the way, like the term like product of like what is a financial product, I personally found so confusing and complicated because it's like, what do you mean? There's no product. Like, you don't sell like a thing. Um, but taking a step back, basically, like the high level on like financial engineering is you have investors that want some level of expected return, and there's some level of risk that they're willing to tolerate to try to achieve that expected level of return. And products are basically instruments with some expected return and some expected risk that might focus on a particular thing. So like you might not just want a 10% return high risk product, but you might want a product with those characteristics that is focused on US equities, which might be a market that you know and care about, or focused specifically on commodities trading and like the price of like aluminum versus the price of copper type of stuff. Right. Right. And so that was um yeah and and I had no idea what any of that meant. Yeah. Right? I still kind of don't. Um but but yeah no it was it was great to be in that group for two months. I learned a ton like you know um it's just like a really interesting part of finance and I think that's also something that I you know throughout my career I've seen like there's so much to the financial services industry and there's more being added right now with the advent of artificial intelligence and you know you have the robo advisors and that's like another whole new thing that you know can um revolutionize the market but also like it means also new opportunities right maybe you before there was only like a money manager you know uh, you would be a, a trader or something like that but now shit you might even be like a coder at a you know hedge fund or something and that's a complete thing and you work in finance um so I, I just think it's it's really interesting and exciting and definitely very different from where it was 10 years ago yeah yeah so now let's let's fast forward a little bit so you uh you don't get the return offer yeah and there's this feeling of overwhelming doom and gloom and devastation and you turned it around just like you know everybody eventually turns it around tell me a little bit maybe a little bit about where you end up working for full time but focus more on how you positioned yourself coming out of not getting an offer which is like you know it's something that a lot of people experience like what yeah. what did you do to try to say like hey I'll be great at this job even though like whatever dynamics happened over the yeah. summer no absolutely and I think that this is also something that I've learned I obviously learned it the hard way um and then and you know looking at other folks and speaking to them it's like if stuff is not clicking it could be because of two things right it could be because you know you don't understand it but you're capable of or because it's just not kind of a, it's it's not how you think and let me let me be careful here but it's like in the trading floor you have to be a really fast thinker and you have to be um kind of very intuitive and there's not a lot of time to like sit down and think about a problem and think about solutions or just like you know start calling people and like okay what do you think about this trade no you have to have like a real instinct for it um which is something that I didn't have and I started realizing that like I wasn't putting in trades or anything when I was an intern but it was just kind of the job and the atmosphere and I just felt out of place 
Um, so, so coming out after not getting an offer, I was, I was very, uh, you know, disappointed. Um, but I think quickly I was like, okay, maybe, maybe that wasn't the place. Maybe it's a good thing that I didn't get that offer. And so now let's look at, at what else there is. And so the first step was going to the career center, you know, and again, like shout out to the folks at, at Georgetown who were, um, really helpful in like understanding where I was. And to your point, like tons of people don't get offers. Right. And so there's this great many people, students who come back after their junior summer and they're like, well, I didn't get an offer. What now? And so you start re-recruiting. And so now you, you start realizing, right. That, Oh, I'm not the only one. Like there's actually a lot of people or some people did get offers, but they want to re-recruit or whatever. Um, and that's completely fine. And so but again, like no one tells you, right? And you hopefully this is a theme of like, it sucks because you think you're the only one. But actually, once you step back and start asking around, it's like, oh, no, there's actually a lot of people who are in my in a similar situation and I can become part of like their tribe, right? And so that's what I did. I started figuring out like, hey, you want to like with my peers, you want to, you know, set up 30 minutes to do a mock interview. Yeah, let's do it. And like that kind of, that kind of bonds, I bonded with people in that way because we were all trying to work towards the same thing. Um, so so anyway, long story short, I started doing that and just applying. And I knew I wanted to stay in finance, right? Uh, there's like kind of two options for me in when I was a junior, it was like consulting or, or finance. And I knew consulting, man, that sounds like you always, again, have to be on the clock and <laughs> you know you, you travel a lot and that's cool but it's apparently like to not great places so i don't know it, it just didn't sound like my cup of tea so it's like i tried finance i actually really like it there's a lot of smart people that's something that really interested in me and it's that it's it's a lot i mean there's a lot of people smart people everywhere but um i just kind of felt more attracted to that and so um so i i started applying and then i found this and I applied to, again, investment banking jobs. I applied to um, equities, funds, anything really that was finance related. I was like, okay, let me just throw my hat in there. Um, but long story short, I, I saw this job posting for an alternative asset manager. And I knew what that meant because when I was in my internship at JP Morgan, um, we were putting some of our clients in private equity funds. And I was like, what is that, right? And so I remember one time I had to like go through a subscription document, like a subscription, the, the sub docs, you know what we call them, where you have an investor, they fill them out. Um, and that's basically like the agreement, the contract between the investor and the private equity fund that they're going to be, you know, an investor in, in, in the fund. Um, and so I knew what, what private equity kind of was. Um, and obviously I started doing research and, um, but, you know, I, and then it was this word again, new acronyms, new words, a fund of funds. It's like, well, what's that? You know? Yeah. Like, so let's, let's, let's talk about yeah. that. Cause this is so critical to the plumbing of like how investments work. Um, let's talk about a fund first, before we talk about fund of funds, what, what's an example of a fund? How's it organized? What do they do? Yeah. A uh, great example, uh, Blackstone. Blackstone's a publicly traded company. You can go look look them up, look up their 10K. They're a private equity company. Um, and what they do is that they set up these vehicles uh, or pools of money, essentially, right? Where you have, um, you know, what, what's called a general partner. Uh, in this case, the general partner is the, the person or group of people who manage a fund 
and get to make the decisions of where to invest the fund. The other side of the that uh, coin is are the limited partners. So that could be Craig, you, me, whomever is on the call, right? We pull our money and we um, we commit to the fund. So we say we are committing $10 million to Blackstone 15, whatever it is. And, you know, Blackstone 15 now has a commitment for us uh, for 15 million. Blackstone 15's job uh, is to go out there and find interesting investment opportunities in whatever strategy um, that they're pursuing. Yep. So I, as a person with money or as a company with money or an institution, I say, hey, like I'm looking for financial products that'll help me generate a return. I go find a fund or I go find a manager of a fund and they're happy to take my money because they're going to earn fees off of my money. Um, and I'm happy to find them if I think they're a smart investor because they're going to earn me money. Okay. So that's a fund. Um, now let's talk about fund of funds. What, where, where do they come in? What does that look like? What are those? Yeah. So a fund of funds is a private equity fund that instead of investing in companies like Blackstone 15 would or buildings like Blackstone Real Estate Partners 15 would, they instead invest in other funds. So this is where it starts to get kind of interesting, right? And, and again, to your point about the financial engineering, this is a great example of that. Um, so I worked for a fund of fund uh, for a while um, where my job as an analyst in at the fund of fund was to evaluate other private equity funds and firms and then assess whether they would be an interesting opportunity for us to, to commit to them. So I would then be assessing, for instance, Blackstone Private Equity 15. Okay, what, you know, are they a compelling team? Are they, you know, what has their track record been? All of that stuff. Um, and then making a decision to commit, again, 10 million or however much capital is on hand um, to, to these funds. And that I, I think is a great setup because I think now listeners can start to have a really cohesive understanding of all of the tiers of the financial system. Because sometimes it's just people with a brokerage account buying Tesla stock, but increasingly more and more of the value of you know US companies and like US economic output is in these privately owned companies, which are basically companies that you can't just go buy stock on. Um, this can range from everything to like a pizza place that like, yeah, of course they're like not on the New York Stock Exchange to increasingly massive companies like OpenAI, like has this partnership with Microsoft. You can't just go buy OpenAI stock. Um, they're privately traded. And so in this ecosystem, the value is getting created by companies, right? Like there is an entrepreneur, there's a CEO that like is building a business that is profitable. Um, the next level of value chain would be the fund manager. So this would be someone who knows how to value these companies. And like, if you work in private equity, the core skill set is finding companies and knowing what they're worth um, and knowing how to bid for them. And then a little bit, once you own it, trying to help the company perform well. But that's not kind of like the tip, you know, the whatever, like the whatever end of the iceberg they, they belong in. Because there's a, a level below that which is 
anybody could just say, hey, like I'm going to start a fund and I'm going to invest in companies. But there's a question of like, are you allocating capital to the right managers? Are the people who are going to be the most value added investors, the ones who are actually getting capital to put money to work in whatever you know, industry or sub-industry or thesis they're pursuing. And so that's where the fund of funds come in. Like the core competency of a fund of fund manager is you might go to, you know, the, you know, the sovereign wealth fund of Singapore, or you might go to a large insurance company or, or a very rich person and just like somebody who has money and they're like, but I don't know, like I want to do like private equity stuff. Um, that person might not be the best selector of the managers. And so it's basically hiring someone to look at the range of all the funds that exist in the world and figure out who are the best of the best, and then help them convince that investor to take the money too. Like that's the other element of this, right? Is that like an investor might say like, I'm full, I don't want your money or, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's also another distinction, right? Because now we're talking about private markets. If you contrast it with the public markets, like there's no reason why you can't buy, um, you know, some stock in, in Tesla. Like if you, it, it like you really can just open your brokerage account and say, uh, yes, buy, boom, click. Yeah. Cause they, they have hundreds of millions of shares. And at any given point in time, some number of those people are willing to sell to you at, you know, the market price. Exactly. But in private markets, it doesn't work like that, right? It's the illiquidity. So I can't go to Blackstone meet right now and say, I want to commit $1,500 to your fund. They're like, well, you, you can't do that. Like you're not an accredited investor. You know, your high net, your, your net worth is not high enough. So, but okay, that's me just an individual. But then think about like even really high net worth individuals can't even access those funds, uh, you know, the black zones of the world or other funds out there, right? So that's where kind of the, the fund the funds model works. It in a way gives folks access to these uh, vehicles um, in, a, in a way that's a little bit easier um, to, to do, right? They don't have to go to black, they don't have to go to like 15 different firms. They can just come, they can just go to one firm and then get exposure to those 15 firms. Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. You've you've done many things um, in your uh, early but already illustrious career. So obviously, um, you know, we've talked about a couple of them, but you made your way to Wharton for the MBA, which is where we know each other. But now you work at Stepstone. So tell me a little bit about what your day-to-day -day looks like. Um, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So my day-to-day, -day, I work in the VC and growth equity team where um, we invest both in funds and venture capital and growth equity funds. So we're limited partners in those. We also invest in startups um, going from like, you know, startups looking to raise their series B, series C, all the way to like uh, almost pre-IPO, like series E or whatever. Um, think about like Stripe is a great example, right? Uh, Company okay, like so so Stripe probably I don't I don't know what their valuation is, but order of magnitude, hundred billion dollars, like big. big. Um, not all Series E companies are Stripe big. Um, but tell me a little, like, what's an example of like what like a Series B company would be like? 
Yeah, so uh, we're looking at a valuation anywhere from like maybe 150 to 250, 300 million dollars. You know, they have they already have a product. Hopefully, they have they're generating some revenue. Um, but uh, really, we come in and we're what we call like scale up capital, right? We want to help the company grow, uh, acquire more customers, sell newer products, hire more people. Um, so that's where we come in, right? And I think um, that's a little bit different from like what what a lot of folks think about when they think about venture capital, which is like finding you know the next Facebook before it's Facebook before even there's like really any users or anything that's venture capital and yes that is a big portion of venture capital but vc has started to to kind of uh, expand a lot more and um you know we can talk about all of this for hours yeah and and so in, in in like these like series b series c companies what what percentage of these companies that you're looking at are actually profitable today uh very, or at the time you're investing very very few, few. like maybe 10 percent uh, um so for listeners who've already like heard a little bit just conceptually how to think about valuation, how to project this stuff. Pretty much everybody is familiar with like public companies. It's like, okay, they're profitable. I know they're going to be profitable in the future. And it's just like, how do I figure that out? So um, you can't really run a PE ratio on an unprofitable business. So like what, what types of frameworks would you use? Or like, how, how would you think about valuing an unprofitable business and why, why is it worth anything? Like, why isn't it like negative money? Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. Um, so I'll address your, your first question first. How do you think, how do you go about valuing a company that's not profitable yet? Well, first off, it, you need to have a good sense of, of what the company does. Is it providing value to its customers? And it might not be profitable right now, but what is its margin, right? Like how much of the, the revenues that they're generating, are they actually like um, after costs? What What is that difference, right? What is their gross margin looking like? Usually when we invest in companies or most of the times when we invest in companies, my firm, um, there's already a gross margin. And we invest in a lot of software businesses. Those are very low um low cost businesses, which means a higher gross margin. And so we like that, right? Um, ideally, we would love to see a company in the 70% to 85% gross margin. Now they're not profitable, by the way. They they still have to pay out like their 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 employees, they still have to pay, you know, the bills, um, uh, marketing, all that, SGNA. And so when, once you get down to like the end of the income statement, that number is still negative, but they are above a certain line. Revenue generating gross profit positive. Yeah. Um, so they so they have sales. You know they make a product that people want, and people are and you know that because people are paying them for it. And then you're really focused on this gross margin, in particular, like not uh, profit margin, not EBITDA margin. It's it's gross margin. Because if it's not profitable today, that means their revenue is not covering all of their costs. But as you roll forward and think about the future in a world where you believe in growth of this business, their gross profit will improve and it will improve quickly relative to revenue because the gross margin is so high. So 
for every dollar of revenue growth they're generating, that's 85 cents of gross profit growth. And so the idea is that that growth will occur faster than their other costs will grow. And that's the math that says it's not profitable today, but it's this line that moves up in some linear, nonlinear, hopefully exponential function. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so like to really address your question, how do we think about it? Well, we think about it. Uh, how do we evaluate companies? We evaluate them in terms of gross margin, but then also in terms of market, right? Is this a market that can sustain a big enough company, a large enough company? And then can this company be a winner in that space? And that's when it gets much more qualitative rather than quantitative. Can you give an example or like, how, how do you even like begin to think about something like that? Yeah, um, that's where, you know, getting to know the founders is really important. Um, uh, Craig, you, you were an entrepreneur yourself, so uh, don't don't have to tell you this, but for everyone else on the call, right? Like having faith in the entrepreneur and and really believing in their vision is kind of one of the most important things that we can do. And how we go about doing that is reference calls, right? So we, we talk to everyone that or try to talk to everyone who's worked with this person. Uh, hopefully this person, this entrepreneur has experience in the market where they're developing their solution, their company. Um, hopefully they have an edge. And usually founders who succeed are very tenacious. They are very driven um, to solve whatever problem they're trying to solve. So that's kind of what we do to evaluate um founders. And then I think that the other thing is also we do a lot of references with other investors. Um, and sometimes they're already, usually when, by the time that we invest, there's already like a seed investor in the company. And so we call them up and say like, hey, how is how is this person? What, what do you think about the company? And you know, that's when you have to be careful because obviously if an investor is already invested in the company, they're going to be like, oh, it's gonna be, it's amazing. It's great. It's, you know, Please come in, you know, <laughs> save, yeah. you know, new funding round, give them more runway. Um, but but we have other ways of like triangulating and making sure that that the company and the product that they're building is um, or can win in the space. As you think about kind of your not only your kind of like core skill sets and competencies, but also your interests and like the type of work that you gravitate towards. There's a lot that goes into your job, right? Like there's uh, there's a networking component, a relationship building component. There's a quantitative component. There is a like business logic and like market landscaping, um, like SWOT analysis component. For someone who's wondering, you know, is is kind of like this this combination direct investing, fund to fund role, like is this right for me? Um, is there any skill set that you find is particularly important or that you spend a particularly large amount of your time working on? Or is it just kind of like, is the generalist ethos grounded in deep financial modeling experience? Like, is that kind of like the the core skill set? Yeah, no, that's that's super. Yeah, well, I could talk about this for hours. Um, but um, I think what I gravitate towards the most in my job are the opportunities where there's an untapped kind of potential. So 
like everyone right now is talking about AI, right? And and so many people are fishing in that in that pond. Um, three, four, five years ago is all about Web three. Everyone's fishing there. But what about like trucking, for instance, right? Like no one's really thinking about trucking or like what kinds of technology solutions a, a trucking company might might want. And I can bet you that there's one or two or three of really interesting companies and driven founders that are really thinking hard about the trucking space and what kind of solutions they want. That's what I really like. And in my job, um, that's what I'm I'm paid to do. I'm, I'm paid to, because we are generalists, right? We kind of have a free range of like to look at everything. Uh, so I'm not a, a healthcare investor. I'm not a software only investor. I'm just a, an investor. And I think that's really that's something that i like i like being a generalist i like looking at a healthcare deal one day then the next day let's look at you know a grocery delivery business and the next day let's look at um uh you know a uh, uh, mobility company in asia and because that's the other thing about my role is that we're global um so so this is why that's why i chose this job really because i had the opportunity to look at a lot of things right and i'm only a year into the job but I can already tell you, like, I'm starting to develop kind of, I'm starting to know what I like. And I always tell people this whenever they ask me, like, you know, in business school, uh, why should I go to business school? It's like, well, business school, you're, you're paying someone else to teach you, right? You're, you're paying to learn. But now I'm getting paid to learn. And that's kind of the best part. And whenever, if folks are in a place where they're getting, like, literally in a job, in a role where they're getting paid to learn stuff that they care about, I think that's absolutely like one of the best um predictors of success and and um fulfillment so yeah. that's that's really what i what i enjoy about my work so so it's really about learning how to learn and so that is to say if you want to spike in one particular category and you want to lean into that and be like at the cutting edge of that one thing maybe this isn't the right career path for you but if you just enjoy learning new stuff if you love to read if you love research like that starts to be the type of archetype of exactly who this is for yeah absolutely absolutely because you have to have you have to be conversational um in a lot of things right like i i need in my role um if i'm talking to founders if i'm talking to firm fund managers right i need to know like have an idea of what an uh, uh um large um language model means like what does that mean right but i also need to know what customer acquisition is for a business that's in grocery delivery like what are those costs look like uh what's the payback period and that's what i enjoy um and i think now i'm starting again to to gravitate towards certain things certain geographies um but again i'm getting paid to learn what i like instead of me having to figure out the hard way um of like you know because you could go to a healthcare business or a healthcare firm and, and be a healthcare investor and be like wow this actually like i i'm not really that passionate about it um and i i see a lot of you know folks our age kind of start to realize that or, or maybe that's why they went to business school too it's like that's this kind of where i ended up uh, but now i'm ready for a change so that's why i'm going to business school or that's why i'm you know taking a little bit of time and figuring out what i want to do um but yeah last question 
Um, and I think this is going to be one that that folks are going to be really interested in, which is, let's say you found a company that hits all the high notes. It's in a sector that you like, big addressable market, high margin, early evidence of being fast growing, and you know we can get a conviction that it will be, continue to be fast growing. How, how do you put a dollar value on something like that? Um, and I guess as a growth investor. It's not just what the valuation is, but how much of a stake you want to take, or you know, or the the entrepreneur will let you take. How how do you think about that, or just like what are some heuristics that you might use to start answering a problem like that? Yeah. Um, well, lucky for me, and this is also why I like being a little bit more on the growth side or looking at more mature companies. You usually have revenues. You they might not be cash flow positive or anything like that. But there's a little bit more more meat to chew on, financially speaking. Um, so you can start to model out, you know, make assumptions and say, okay, like in ten or not ten years, but like in five years, where is this company going to be? Um, so you do that. You also start thinking about exit, right? Liquidity. So who might be a, an acquirer of this company? Um, is it going to be a strategic company or a street? You know, like a, if I'm looking at a pharma deal, is it going to be? Eli Lilly or Pfizer who acquired this company. Um, if I'm looking at, a, let's say, a transportation deal, right? Is, is Tesla going to buy this software or something like that? Or does it have the potential to, to go public? And it seemed, you know, for five years, five years ago or so that everyone was going public, you know, SPACs were all the rage. Um, and now, you know, over the past year or so, it's been the complete opposite. No one, no one's going public. Um, but that's the other kind of option for liquidity. So it would be, you know, I look at really, you know, do a deeper dive on, on the business itself, start to model it out, make some assumptions about growth, about um, margins, et cetera. Think about exit liquidity. Um, and then, you know, as, as another portion of that or another part of that is um, what are the public, publicly traded companies that are in this space? What are they looking like? So, you know, um, you're talking about PE ratios, something that we look at a lot is forward revenue multiples or forward. And th that's what that means is you take the valuation of a company, of a public company, and then there are estimates that the analysts in the street come up with for what the revenue is going to look like next year. So you basically are saying it's kind of like a PE ratio. It's a valuation ratio, right? You're saying it's a 20 times, you know, this business is worth 20 times its revenue next year. Um, so we look at a lot of those and then we come up with an average, right? And then we stick it into the model and, okay, what does it say? You know, what's the end of day, you know, um, equity valuation for this, for this company? If it's something, you know, that we, that meets our underwriting, meets our criteria, then that's the, the go forward light. If it doesn't, well, it might not right now, or maybe we have to revisit some assumptions and then, you know, make sure that we're really understanding the the, the business and the sector and then the exit um, potential. Um, so which is it's, of how we think about it. Which is a fascinatingly different approach from public market investing in a lot of ways, because if you're looking at a public stock, you're kind of doing forward logic where you know what they have today. You'll build a cash flow projection, and that's your value. And basically, you're comparing what you think the value of this company is today 
against what other people think the value of this company is today. Like everyone's looking at value today. And if you're buying a publicly available stock, your opinion is that, or your analysis shows that this company is worth more than other people think that it's worth. And in private markets, particularly in VC and in growth equity, there's this funny recursive logic where you're kind of taking for granted or taken as given, there is a big liquid public market out there for companies that sort of look like bigger future versions of what this company could look like. I'm just going to take that market price. I'm not going to like take a view on that. Like that's just what people think these companies are worth. I know what we have today. And so the first step is, can I get conviction that we will look something like that in the future? You can look at how the market will in the future value this future thing. And then you can work your way backwards to say, okay, at what level do I have to come in today to earn a satisfactory return that meets my return threshold and underwriting standards such that if I'm right, I generate that return because this company will look like these other things. Um, yeah. Which gets to like the big VC downturn that's, that's been so fascinating is like on the one hand, there's so much dry powder, right? There's like all this like venture capital money. On the other hand, when public market valuations for fast growing, recently IPO'd companies dries up, or when the IPO market dries up and it's harder for companies to go public, valuations are coming down for two reasons. One, because public companies like these reference benchmarks are coming down. And two, a delay, especially for like later stage VC, like companies that like maybe would have gone public this year, but now have to wait a year. The investors today have to delay their expectations of when it's going to achieve that value. And so you have to further discount the value today because there's more time between now and then. Exactly. And there's also uncertainty too. There's like this question of like, well, we don't know if these multiples are going to be sustainable. Um, yeah. Because... It's hard to project in the future whether multiples will come up or come down. Um, so you people tend to just look at like what the forward revenue multiples are today, right? Which is like sort of like a complicated logic, but um, yeah. yeah, no, it should be it should always be what are the forward multiples going to be at the time of exit, yeah, which makes it incredibly difficult because you, there's no way to know that, <laughs> yeah. If someone does, though, like, yeah, it, it would be great if you know that. But absent that information, people just tend to look at what the forward multiples are today as a proxy for like, well, I don't know if it'll be higher or lower, but this is where it is, and so this is yeah. where we are. Yeah. Um, Rodrigo, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Of course, happy. Uh, hopefully, that was succinct, and you know, it helps people out there. And yeah, happy, happy to do this, and. Um, Craig, you have my, my contact info, so uh, don't, don't hesitate. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.